Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. You know, I've been talking about earned media value for quite some time on this podcast. My friends at Eisenberg have just raised the bar on earned media benchmarks with their social index. Social index now gives you globally earned media values across a growing list of six geographies for all your KPIs across the top seven social platforms, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Snapchat, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. You can now visualize these values for deeper analysis, and they have a look-back window over two years of historical comparisons. Social Index is updated daily. Don't get stuck with old data. Over 1,000 companies have used the Social Index to understand the ROI of their social campaigns. And if you work with a social agency, you should demand they incorporate earned media values into your reports. Get your earned media value for social content. Visit earnedmediavalues.com slash Allen. Again, that's earnedmediavalues.com slash A-L-A-N. For all of us, it's about predicting where the consumer is going and getting half of it right. One of the things we want to do is create ads that don't suck. Embracing change creates great possibility. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Today on the show, I've got Brandon Roten, CMO of Papa John's. Brandon's been at Papa John's for about eight to nine months. Prior to that, he was VP in charge of advertising, media, digital, and social media at Wendy's. We talk a little bit about the most, I think it was the most retweeted campaign ever, or hashtag ever, for Nugs for Carter, where a guy was trying to get free nuggets for life, and they went back and forth. The, the person that ended up, I guess Carter, ended up getting on Ellen, and it was a thing. So we talk a little bit about how that came about, what was the environment of the team, the capabilities that they had to be able to catch that opportunity and actually make it and maximize it to its fullest extent. We take a lot about where he thinks marketing is going in terms of making marketing content and content worth consuming versus just advertising. We hit on customer experience as well as a number of other topics, including the future of marketing. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Brandon. Well, Brandon, welcome to the show. Thanks. Appreciate you having me. Yeah. So we've got a lot to talk about, but I thought one place we could start is your background and where you started your career and were there any pivotal twists or turns or mentors along the way? Sure. So I, I really got into marketing at an agency, a company called Gyro, based in London with US headquarters in Cincinnati. I spent a lot of time working with tech clients and actually a lot of B2B work. There, I sort of learned that you could tell an interesting story about a brand, even if they were making like ball bearings or machine tools, which really helped me understand how to sort of tell a brand story and build a personality for a brand. Uh, that led me eventually to Wendy's. So I ran all advertising, media, digital, social media for Wendy's for almost six years. 
I actually joined the brand when things were pretty rough. The split from Arby's occurred and the brand was in, in sort of a rough spot where I hadn't been growing for a while and sort of had free reign to build out a, a voice, to build out new advertising platforms, to transition into digital, and ultimately to build out the social, digital, and, and advertising voice for the brand for about the last six years. And that led me to Papa John's just eight, nine months ago. So I'm relatively new in my new gig. All right, great. Let's talk a little bit about Wendy's. You brought it up. I know the organization, it sounded like from a prior conversation we were having, the organization was really, when you came in, focused on digital and kind of transforming, if you will, how they went to market a little bit. Can you tell us a little bit about that evolution? Sure. So when I joined the brand, really its experience had been growth comes through traditional media. So you remember, Dave Thomas was on television literally more than any other founder in history decades. And that really grew the brand in the 80s and the 90s. You know, the kind of first big moment that they learned marketing could work was where's the beef even before that. So the brand was very comfortable with the idea of, of traditional marketing, specifically um, television marketing, driving growth. And essentially what had happened over the couple years preceding me joining, actually about 10 years preceding me joining, is that growth slowed and stopped. And as part of a new CEO coming in and a bunch of new executives coming in, they wanted to actually build up a digital capability in the organization. So they found me and, and asked me to come and, and do that for them. So I was actually the first person in the building at Wendy's 2011 with digital in their title. So I was a digital marketing director with no staff and no budget. And I essentially just <laughs> fell into the organization, this idea that, you know, in 2011, when social networks had been established by then, and, and a lot of the work I had done previously through the agency had, had shown, you know, I had proof that you could actually grow a brand through, through digital marketing. I had to make a case to the board, to franchisees, to really, you know, hundreds of thousands of employees that we could actually use digital marketing to grow the brand. So a lot of testing, a lot of research, a lot of discussions with the board and the executive team and, and franchisees to show them that this is actually a, a way we can start differentiating as a brand. Hmm. That led to a few wins in 2011-2012 that essentially started to snowball. So once we sort of found our pace, figured out where are the digital avenues for advertising that could actually you know grow the brands perception, but I actually grow business at the same time, they kept giving me stuff to do. So, you know, soon <laughs> I was in charge of all digital assets, not just marketing. And then I was in charge of all media. And then I was in charge of all advertising and all creative. And before long, I was managing the entire essentially communications team for the brand. Mm. And really by 2015, 2016, we had everything in place and we're actually starting to make great progress, both from a, a business growth standpoint, but also really from a messaging standpoint. So we're starting to pay attention to the brand. We were getting articles written about us, all that that kind of jive. Yeah. Well, one of the most recognizable efforts was the hashtag Nugs for Carter. Could you tell us a little bit about it for anybody that doesn't know that? They've been stuck under a rock this entire time, but tell us a little bit about it. And then I'd love to know the origin and like, when did you guys get engaged on that effort? Sure. So we had been building for probably four years leading up to that moment, a totally differentiated social voice that had a deep relationship with Twitter and Facebook and Snap and all these social platforms. And it had actually been noticed probably 25, 30 times before by publications and, and others, some good, some bad. I remember back in 2013, I think it was 2013, two big business publications wrote articles about how our social voice was ruining brands and how dare brands you know, try to talk like a person online. We were the only ones doing it, but we were one of the more conservative brands, I guess, or one of the more kind of mainstream brands doing it. 
Right. So we built this team out, an external team and an internal team. So the external team was at our agency, an internal team was for people we hired to be our social voice. And, and this team's job essentially was to express the true personality of the brand. So we'd done a lot of work leading up to this to define the voice of the brand. And essentially, we were a challenger brand. You think about where's the beef? Mm -hmm. Challenge kind of convention in your category. So as the team was doing this, we hit many moments that were were very good for the brand, but we're really always on the lookout for big moments that we could engage and get attention. We gave the team a lot of leverage to live the voice. In fact, it was so much leverage that we didn't have a formalized process internally. Essentially, what happened was we had guidelines for our social voice and, and a team that was empowered to do that. We had hired you know, comedians and copywriters to help us build that out. And essentially, they just needed to send a text to me if they were going to do anything that was kind of pushing the boundaries to say, is it cool to do this? And this particular night, this was in 2017, it was about a year ago now, actually, just, just over a year. I got a text at like 10.15 at night and one of my social leads said, hey, we got this guy saying he desperately wants nuggets for life. We're thinking about challenging him that if he gets so many retweets, we give it to him. So I said, how many? They said, I don't know, maybe 18 million because the record at the time was like 3 million or something. Ellen had a record for retweets of like 3.5 million. I said, go. So I mean, literally from the time the guy posted it to when the team responded, and it was all their idea to respond, was minutes. It was really fast. You know, I show up to the office the next morning and you know, I'm in about eight o'clock most mornings. And my social team's usually not in there until like nine or nine thirty. You know, they're right. just morning people. Right. Everyone was there already. So I knew something was up and I grabbed, you know, the lead of the department and said, What's going on here? And they said, This Nugs for Carter thing is blowing up. And I said, I don't really know what Nugs for Carter is. And they said, What's well, <laughs> that tweet we sent last night? It became this hashtag of Nugs for Carter, and we think we can make it bigger if we do X, Y, and Z. So we started kind of encouraging it and tagging influencers and celebrities. And we put a bunch of money behind it with Twitter. And we, you know, one of the wonderful things about social is once something starts to organically take off, you can sort of roll it like a snowball and make it bigger. That's exactly what we did. We did that for a couple of days, which ultimately got him on Ellen, got, you know, Carter (laughs) on Ellen and hundreds and hundreds of articles written about it. And it did become the most retweeted moment in history, you know, shortly after that. So Kind of the moral of the story is we had to do all the homework first. It didn't happen overnight. We didn't have a a lucky moment. We were just ready for a moment. Right. Because the right people in place, we had the right voice in place, we had clear guidelines, we had an easy process, and we let our people do their jobs. It was awesome. It was absolutely awesome. And they've had, you know, the team since I've left, I've been gone, you know, a little while now, you know, several months, they've had several more wins since then. And I think it's because of the infrastructure that was designed. That idea that you know your voice, you know how to communicate as a brand, you know what the rules are, and you have the freedom to execute. That led to a pretty cool thing. Yeah, it sounds like you had the just the perfect formula or the perfect environment, if you will, like the right context, right team, right guidelines, and they just can catch these things. That's awesome. That's awesome. It would switch gears. We'll go from Wendy's to now you're at Papa John's, and you, you said you've been there eight, nine months. If you think about you know when you first started... I hear a lot of CMOs, new CMOs, you know, talk about, you know, where do I start? So I want to ask you the same question. Where did you start? What did you start when you rolled in the first day, first month? Yeah. So I'm a big believer you start where the consumer's at and what the current perception is of your brand. So much like Wendy's, you know, I, I spent my first five or six months 
is working with the team to understand what's going on here, understand what is the perception of the brand, what are the equities that used to exist, what made the brand successful when it was very, very successful when it was just first growing. So I spent a lot of time doing research with the team here. Also visiting with franchisees, visiting with stakeholders. Spent a lot of time with John, spent a lot of time with, with Steve Ritchie, the COO at the time, now the CEO, and dug into what story should we be telling? What is this brand to people? So I started with a lot of digging. While we were doing that, we were kind of grabbing some low-hanging fruit left and right about you know where are some opportunities in media, what infrastructure do we need to put in place to measure our media. You know, most brands don't actually have an attribution system to understand when they spend a dollar, what do they get back? I think that's crazy. I think you must measure every dollar you put into marketing, especially in the media. We didn't have a necessarily all the right external partners to execute across all modern media. A lot of Agencies, for example, are good at one thing. They're good at print or they're good at outdoor. They're good at TV or whatever. But we really needed a partner that was good across many mediums, especially given the fact that more than half of pizza is sold online. This is really an e-commerce brand more than a brick and mortar brand. So I spent a lot of time setting up the infrastructure, really from the summer when I started to the winter. And as we started to set up that infrastructure, we began experimenting with sort of the ways to execute and how consumers might receive the brand. Which culminated in us, you know, bringing in new creative agency, bringing in new media assistants, hiring a few people internally, restructuring a bit, and actually starting to bring in a new social voice, a new kind of creative look and feel, which you're just starting to see now, and asking a lot of questions we didn't ask before, like, you know, what is the actual problem we're trying to solve as far as consumers are concerned related to the brand? So a lot of homework essentially to get started. Right. Right. We did have a bit of a moment. So we had a PR kind of issue rise up in November, which pulled us back a few steps and really actually helped, I think, me and the team understand in a more meaningful way exactly what are the real equities of this brand and exactly what we should be doing going forward. So we haven't addressed that head on quite yet, but that's coming. We've done a few things, but that's coming because we do know that we've got work to do as a brand and as an organization to make sure that you know, we are a modern marketer, but also a modern brand. Hmm. But a lot of homework, essentially. And, and I've been here, you know, since the summer. And, and right now, you know, in the spring is just when the work is starting to get in the world. So right. I think the average tenure of a CMO is something like 18 months. And really, it's because the first year is just learning and the next <laughs> is trying things. Right. So, you know, if I'm still selling pizza at the end of the summer, you know, it worked. If it didn't, you know, it wasn't quite a fit. And that's okay. Right, right, right. That's funny. It's an interesting market, right? I mean, the pizza and pizza delivery, uh, you know, you've got, you know, obviously there's the Domino's story of them, you know, coming out and realizing quality was an issue and trying to reinvent that process, implementing some interesting like tracking tech, if you will. But in general, I mean, there's a lot of upstarts as well. It, think about it, it's kind of crazy to say that there's there's new entrants coming into a market like that. How do you think about, and you don't have to you know tip your hand necessarily, but how do you think about differentiating Papa John's in kind of a, a large, I would imagine large and sometimes hard to differentiate category? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I've been in food since, since Wendy's. I didn't do food before then, but pizza is absolutely a very commoditized market where the assumption is pizza is pizza is pizza and all pizza is good. So that is absolutely a challenge. My kind of core philosophy is you have to focus on a single thing. If you don't focus on a single thing, then consumers don't know how to connect with you. I think the magic of what Domino's has done, and I, I do think it's magic, I think they've been amazingly successful and for very simple reasons and focus. 
they did have that moment where they said, kind of, our pizza's terrible, and here's a remix of that. But realistically, that isn't their area of focus. That was just sort of like set the standard that it's edible. Right. Past that, right. their entire area of focus has been distribution. That's it. It's about distribution through technology, through delivery. You know, there used to be there. They, they said back in the 80s, we're not a pizza company. We're a delivery company. That still holds true. Remodeling their stores, pizza pickup, carryout guarantee, everything. Technology, drones, delivery cars, everything is about distribution. They've committed to being the Amazon of pizza. That the product is there and, and is okay. But that's not the reason that you, you come to this brand. It's about distribution. That's genius. That level of focus is genius. It's clean, it's consistent. And if you think about getting pizza to you in a million different ways, they're really easy or really fast or whatever, you think of Domino's because they own distribution. So I admire that. That's awesome. Think about Little Caesars. Little Caesars owns price. They're about cheap, you know, and they don't pull punches when it comes to cheap. You know, $5 pizzas that you can pick up at any time. That focus is great. Right. That focus is powerful. I think the reason Pizza Hut has kind of had fits and spurts is because they haven't been very focused. You know, they go from kind of innovation to price to discounting to now they're getting into sports. They're kind of following the lead that Papa John's ran for years. And I think that's part of the reason they haven't consistently grown over the last several years. Now that they're starting to get kind of their ducks in a row, which is great for them. I don't know if it's good for other pizza categories, but it's great for them. Because they, they're still the biggest player. I mean, Domino's has more revenue as of this year, but still, they're, they're a 900-pound gorilla. Right. Papa John's really was founded for a very clear reason. It was nobody in the chains of pizza, nobody who's at scale, is really about the product. Mm-hmm. You know, Pizza Hut wasn't really about the product. They are about product innovation. They are about dining in, all this stuff. But, but nobody's really about the product. And what happened in, when Papa John's was founded was, John said, we're going to be about product. And... That's a, still a white space in pizza, I would argue. The people who own product right now are locals. So half of all pizza sales are local sales. And that's, there's almost no other restaurant categories. None I know of anyways. It's like that. So really, it's about owning product versus owning distribution or innovation or something else. So you know, better ingredients, better pizza is kind of a clean articulation of that. I think it's a bit maybe superficial for a modern consumer. So we have to work on defining better. Right. But product really is the thing that is the white space in pizza. I'm shocked that nobody else has grabbed that. When you think about in Mexican food, Chipotle grabbed that before they, you know, got into trouble for some of their health stuff. Right. In burgers, you know, Wendy's grabbed it with Fresh Never Frozen, but before them, Five Guys and others like Five Guys in and out kind of grabbed it. In every space, someone says, we got to hold up the food you're going to put in your mouth. And in pizza, it really hasn't happened to any major extent. So that's the opportunity, I think. In, in what we're working on. And, and I'm not telling you anything that's a surprise that right. to everybody who works at Pizza Hut and Domino's, they know that. They know what their space is. And Little Caesars, right. they know what their space is. But I would argue we haven't expressed our point of differentiation, which is better pizza in a meaningful way in the last few years. And that's the opportunity for us is to embrace that idea that you, you, know, you actually got to eat this thing <laughs> and you want to love what you eat. And I think that's the white space that still exists. Nice. So you talked about new work breaking. Tell us a little bit about the new work and what that work's meant to do for you guys. Yeah, so, you know, we talked a little bit before about the pizza space being really commoditized. Everybody sort of does the same stuff. You know, the cheese pool shot where you got cheese stretching, you know, six, eight, ten inches. You've got these helicopter shots of food. You've got big aggressive price points and 50% off and you know, I jokingly call it like Buddy's Carpet Barn craziness, where it's this local ad where you're just selling everything on sale all the time. It's kind of all very similar, I would argue. Domino's is a bit different in the category, but by and large, the creative is, is really hard to distinguish 
brand to brand. And our opportunity really was to break free of that, to have a different look and feel, to have an expression that's a bit more modern, a bit more connected into where an audience that sort of is, is a paying attention to brands might actually, might actually grab their eye. So what you're seeing from our new partner laundry service is work that's built a little bit more around the assumptions of digital distribution and content that works in digital distribution and using advertising as a form of sort of entertainment to grab you and then sort of say, hey, this is why we're giving you this moment. The specific creative that just launched is we have a specific offer to $12.99 for a pizza side and a, a two-liter soda. And, and normally, the way you'd sell that is you'd have a big picture of a pizza rotating in the middle and bread sticks on the side and a two-liter sitting there. And you'd pan around it and say, hey, for all this food, we're just $12.99 only this week at Papa John's or it would sort of sound like Monster Truck Rally or whatever. Right. That's just the way that the category tends to do it. Instead, what we decided to do was say, well, you know, we want to ladder up this idea that we're actually about better stuff. We haven't quite explained that to the world yet. We still work to do to do that. You know, we've got, got more work coming to help flush that out. But we actually wanted to celebrate the idea that, you know, there's a lot of good stuff here for just $12.99. So the idea the agency brought forward was 12.99 seconds of better. So your typical television execution, for example, is 15 seconds. A lot of pre-roll on YouTube the same way and other resources. It's literally 12.99 seconds of something that's kind of cool, like puppies playing. <laughs> and it's a countdown on the screen. And then at the end of it, or at the beginning of it, depending on the execution, it says, this is kind of brought to you by this 12.99 meal deal from Papa John's. When I first saw the idea, I was like, that's a genius. You know, it's simple. It's clean. It's straightforward. Is it the most breakthrough thing in history? No. Is it going to win can lions? No, it's not like changing the planet, but it's simple, it's clean, and it actually speaks to better, even if superficially. So my expectation is it's going to take us, you know, a dozen tries to get sort of the new look and feel perfect. It just will. That's how new campaigns usually work. It's not perfect at the gate 99 out of 100 times. But it's a great start to break free of kind of the conventions that are in the category that I think actually pull every brand backwards. So if we can be a little different and we can be different in, this for, in service to better and the idea that we're focused on better, to me, that's a great start to actually differentiate the brand. And the $12.99 offer is, is actually very different than what a lot of other people are doing too, just the offer itself. You know, a lot of pizza brands focus on percent off. Papa John's done that quite a bit, but percent off, or they focus on, you know, very low price point deals. Instead, what I'm trying to express here is, you know, you can feed your family and it's actually reasonable. And you can actually access better in a way that it doesn't cost you an arm and a leg and kind of do it in a fun way, like with people playing basketball or puppies or a guy racing a drag racer or whatever. Right, right. And if you actually look online, there's dozens of executions online. We're taking quasi-viral videos and kind of building it in the same construct. And so far, it seems to be working. People are responding very positively to the creative. Right. I just had this thought, too. I mean, another thing you're doing with that 12.99 seconds is creating a, a sense of scarcity, <laughs> right? Like, it's going to end. And I don't know if the psychology person in me is like, huh, I wonder if that's triggering more behavior. You'll have to tell me what the results are. But oh, when we wrap our quarter, we'll talk. How's that? Yeah, that sounds good. Sounds good. I didn't think about that. But with the countdown clock, there is that notion of this is going to end. And what do I do next? If I really like it, I want to see it again. 
Look at that. We're smarter than we thought, right? There. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it brings me to a comment in an article I was reading that I think Campaign had interviewed you and said they only wanted one word responses. And there was this question that they asked, which really intrigued me. You know, what is the future of creative? And your one word answer was entertainment. And so I'd love for you to explain why entertainment. Yeah. So first of all, I think that's a really creative way to do an article just to have one it word is. answers to everything. And it's, it's easy to, to babble on for 20 minutes, but it's pretty hard to distill it all down to one word. But the reason I said entertainment was media's nature was disruption for a long, long time, where you were trying to consume a television program or read an article in a magazine or listen to music on the radio. And you had to put up with brands interrupting that experience in order for the experience to be free. And I think that model is dying. And for good reason, you know, in part because a generation is growing up that has access to just content everywhere. So you don't have to put up with bad advertising and you don't even have to put up with advertising at all if you pay enough. But it's also dying, I think, because that was built to functionally allow a, a medium to survive that, that that function's not needed anymore. You can pay for HBO Go or Netflix. You can buy Spotify and not have to listen to ads if you choose. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So I think the, the future is moving to a place where content has more inherent value. And therefore, people will be willing to actually pay a little bit potentially for content versus just kind of trade airtime or, or ad time or their data, for example. You see a lot of stuff on Facebook right now on the same topic or access to content. And it's going to take a lot of time. But I think this is no different than the transition to cable TV. This is no different than the transition to streaming, which is hot and heavy right now, you know? So what we... The future for brands then to actually communicate in that new world is to actually produce content worth consuming. And you hear a lot of people talk about things like advertorials and I'm the content manager of this brand or whatever. But a lot of that stuff has been built to kind of cover up ads so they feel like they belong in a context versus actually make content that's worth consuming. Right in and of itself. And when brands do that, it's kind of magical. And I think the challenge to marketers and the marketers who are learning kind of this new world is to figure out how to do that properly. You know, Nike does it very well. Apple tends to do it pretty well. You know, their unveiling events, Apple's unveiling events are their own media shows. Right. right. It's not traditional media. You know, Elon Musk for Tesla, instead of buying a Super Bowl spot, he shot a car into space. <laughs> you know, 
it's genius as far as I'm concerned. I'm not saying it's about stunts and PR stunts and all that. That's kind of one side of it and, and probably is the superficial side of it. But I do think you have to earn your time in someone's face or in their ears or whatever as a brand. That's hard. We're going to be talking to producers and artists versus copywriters necessarily. That's why you have to hire a comedian to manage your social feed instead of you know, somebody who's written ad copy their whole life. Right, right. And I think that's awesome. I think that's good for brands because we can actually be authentic and real and interesting and earn our time, but it's actually really good for consumers. So if the trade-off of consuming the program isn't you have to watch 30 seconds of the stupid ad, instead, you actually can consume something worthwhile or the, the content you're actually reaching for is the good content. That's awesome. That's an awesome world of marketing, I think. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. I think it's an overused example, but I think Red Bull was a you know an early person that figured this out, early brand that figured out the whole creating content worth consuming, to use your phrase, with all of their media that they produce and events. And it's sponsored by Red Bull, but I would just go to get the ski jump, you know, the the airplane assault, whatever it might be that they're producing. Yeah, it's, it's far from perfect right now, but there are some brands that are doing it well, and I don't think it's a solution to everything yet. Right. But just to me, the, this is a wonderful change. And it scares a lot, I think, traditional ad people because mm-hmm. they understand how to buy 30-second TV spots. They understand what TRPs do. They understand what impressions and reach and click-through rates are. Mm-hmm. And these, this is totally different. This is a relationship you build with consumers that is kind of symbiotic, where right. you actually appreciate each other for deeper reasons. And most brands are really bad at it. Papa Jones is not good at it yet. I'll be very clear, not good at it yet. <laughs> but I think that's where brands should go and not all in. You got to balance it until the world's there. But I love a world where I don't have to consume what feels like an ad. I think that's great. Cool. Well, I want to shift gears a little bit. You've got a significant number of physical locations. So I think there's over 5,000 worldwide. I'm not sure I have the right number, but you're clearly an omni-channel business. I mean, especially you know, I'm in the US. You know, when I go to order a pizza, I'm going to start online most likely. How do you think about managing that customer experience across those contact points? You know, whether it's the, the, you know, the web to delivery driver, the web to pick up, whatever it might be. How do you think about it? Yeah, so we, we do have 5,200 locations all around the world. The majority of those are in, in North America, just over 3,000 are in the U.S. and you know a couple hundred more in Canada and, and in Mexico. So it is a big thing to actually manage, not just... I mean, it's hard enough to manage TV versus digital, much less digital advertising versus digital assets like your .com and social. And then you get to you know the physical experience of delivery and you have this whole other e-commerce side of the business that's so big and functional mm-hmm. that branding that can be be hard and then you've got physical human beings that actually have to interact with other human beings that are buying for you and you have to manage those folks so i kind of have a, a similar challenge without the, the heavy e-commerce focus in my last gig and you know the way that we started building that out and you know ne- it's never done i would argue but the way we started building it out is, is with that first step of defining what your brand is you know and i know that sounds cliche but it's true if you have a clear brand voice this is who we are this is what we believe in this is sort of our area of focus everything gets a little easier after that because then all of a sudden you know we're not worried about all these little shiny objects that pop up every single day instead you have a clear direction and goal and voice as a brand. So, you know, I I use an example of my last gig, you know, one of the the big moments that made me smile ear to ear was after we had started really getting a lot of press for 
our social voice and the Twitter activity and Facebook activity that we were doing so well on and, and won a bunch of awards and all that stuff. The moment that actually like it dawned on me that it's working is when BuzzFeed did a piece where they went to Wendy's employees. We didn't sponsor this. This was something they did on their own. And asked them to speak as the Twitter handle of Wendy's. Asked them to be snarky and to be <laughs> a challenger and to embody the voice. And they did it perfectly. Everyone they interviewed did it perfectly. They wrote... They, they put what my copywriters, what my social team would have written and said it out loud to BuzzFeed. <laughs> I, I almost cried. I was so overjoyed. The fact that, okay, it's not... It's working. We're actually in the culture of the business. So again, it sounds cliche, but you got to establish that voice first because that's really what builds everything. And that takes time. That took us two plus years at Wendy's. It just takes time. I think the other thing is you have to actually live the experience. So you think about, you describe kind of your pizza buying moment, you know, probably online. Well, odds are what you're doing is sit on the couch with a tablet in your lap and a phone in your pocket and the television's running in the background and you're, you start to get hungry and you scream out to whoever your significant other is that's in the house. Hey, I'm thinking about ordering pizza. Right. They scream back something mumbled and you say, okay, I'll just figure it out. And then you go through a process where you probably are doing a little digging for deals or doing a little digging. Maybe an ad comes up while you're thinking about it. That kind of spawns you to or pushes you to go to a particular brand or get a particular deal. But the, the experience is not linear. It is not literally, I saw a television ad, so I bought your pizza. That's not how human beings work. Right. You know, you have all these touch points through your social networks, through all the media you consume, through the experiences you have that build to something that like tickles the back of your mind that says, I'm interested in this brand or this product. And I think the marketer's job is one, establish that voice because that sets a consistent tickle in the back of your mind. But two, is to actually understand all those touch points and how people make decisions. And different people make decisions in different ways. So it's actually really complicated because it's not just one person's complicated decision. It's hundreds of different groups of people's complicated decisions. And in a modern world where you have dozens and dozens of media sources that you're exposed to you know, every hour, that's a big task. So you have to build out tools and rules and measurements to understand how you actually are reaching and influencing someone in their behavior. And that takes some time. That's not a stunt. That's not just the shoot the car in the sky you know, that Elon did. That was him understanding that his voice is all about innovation. And I'm going to challenge anyone who challenges the idea of innovation. And I have to make sacrifices on what I can and can't do. I mean, I'm sure a billion people told him, just put an engine in the thing and make it a hybrid. Then nobody will buy it. He said, no, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I'm going to do it the right way. And then I'm going to build this battery and stick it in people's houses. And then I'm going to stick this crazy thing on your roof where you can generate your own electricity. Right. All in on a singular concept. So, so I'm answering your question a really long way. But essentially, I think you have to define where your area of focus is and how your brand is articulated as a voice through that area of focus. Mm -hmm. And then you got to figure out how do consumers actually connect with that and experiment and measure and learn on how you can make those connections actually result in business. And not a single tactic. It's not a single idea. It never is. It's a million little things that add up to a moment of growth. And a lot of brands aren't patient enough. A lot of consumers aren't patient enough, but really a lot of brands aren't patient enough to build out both the voice and those points of connection which leads to a lot of inconsistent brands which don't have that little tickle in the back of your head. So you instead order from someone else. Right, right. Love it. So you've clearly been a change agent, both at prior post as well as your current gig. 
what advice would you give other peers, other CMOs that are trying to be a change agent? Well, first of all, I'd argue that here I'm not quite a change agent yet. We're just getting started. The advice I'd give is nobody sees the bullshit in the background. Nobody sees the PowerPoints. Nobody sees the politics. Nobody sees the internal arguments. Nobody sees the power struggles. Nobody sees any of that garbage. Mm. Human beings, real people, all they see is the work. That's it. Hmm. So if you forget about the politics, you forget about the bullshit, and just remember the work is what people actually connect with and see and focus on that, you can be more successful, I've found. I love it. It's really hard, though, when you get stuck in the the day-to-day of the politics and the internal strife and the logistics and the garbage that comes along with any big company to lose heart and just say, well, we'll do it the way we've always done it or whatever. Mm -hmm. That's a clear recipe to be generic and khaki and a failure. Right, right. And you just have to be willing to believe in the work. If you are a champion for the work and for the people doing the work, eventually you win. Right. But you just have to stand up for the work. If there's any single piece of advice I'd give beyond standing for the work is put a bunch of money in the bank so you can always stand up for the work and walk away if you feel like it. <laughs> yeah. I had a former mentor boss who used to call that my F you money bag. So <laughs> yeah. yeah, I call me me and my wife call it our F it fund. Yeah. So we has got a rough yeah. you know, six months at a gig and decides he wants to start looking, then let's let's make sure the F off fund is well well funded. <laughs> so yeah. That's right. That's right. Stepping back from the interview uh, and, you know, and talking about Papa John's, I'm going to ask you, I love to get to know the person I'm talking to a little bit more. And I think listeners do too. So I love asking this question, which is, you know, is there an experience of your past that defines or makes up who you are today? I mean, I can give you a bunch of cliche moments like, you know, when my first child was born or when I got married or <laughs> whatever. And all those things obviously did. Are true. Yes. Yeah. And my future I would say, though, the first time that I really stood up for work I loved affected my career more than anything else. And it was very early. You know, I was at an agency and we had a piece of work that I really, really loved. And I swung for the fences with it. It didn't get in the world, by the way. Hmm. But that gave me this kind of stir that said, no, the work is kind of eternal. It's bigger than you. It's bigger than the decisions that are being made. It's bigger than the politics. It's bigger than all this stuff, the work itself, if you love the work and you've got data to back up why it's good, that's like, it's a rush. It's a serious rush. And then I remember it served me well, but I remember the first time at Wendy's that something I loved and most people hated worked and it really worked. Like it blew the doors off. Wow. <laughs> that was such a rush. It's like, you know, I actually know what I'm doing. It's, it's, it really worked. And then you see that same thing. And that's really what I think most creatives kind of have in them. They have this moment where they just want their art to be seen. Mm-hmm. And they kind of see it as art. And it's your job as a person running at a, at a brand to balance the art and the sales. But that's probably the biggest thing that influenced me was just this moment where it was about the work. It wasn't about making people happy inside. It was about making millions of people in the real world happy. And that was really exciting. And the second I let go of this idea that I need to be friends with everybody internally, I need to just be agreeable and instead champion what I, in my gut and what the data tells me is going to drive the change that we're, I'm being asked to accomplish. That was a, a huge moment in my career, in my life. Mm-hmm. But my daughter being born was awesome too. Of course, of course. (laughs) So what? uh, this may be similar. What fuels you or what drives you? Yeah, it is the idea that I can actually affect something significant. And it's not a power trip. I don't want to make it sound like that at all because that's not what it is. It's at Papa John's, for example. There's 120,000 people that work for this brand. There are 400 different franchisee groups. Mm -hmm. 
So I have literally hundreds of thousands of families that are counting on this work to be successful. And the idea that when we produce something like a commercial that has puppies in it, and it can actually drive the success and the fortunes of hundreds of thousands of families, it's a bit overwhelming, but it's also kind of this humbling sense that I'm actually doing something positive. And it makes them ridiculous because I was trying to sell cheeseburgers, I'm trying to sell pizzas, I'm trying to sell machine tools or whatever in one of these gigs or processors and in a computer, whatever, who cares what the thing is. But it actually affects people's real lives and their success and whether they can retire early and whether or not they get to have a great vacation or they get a bonus at Christmas and all this stuff. And it's not all just about sales, but the idea that you can drive that and you can affect so many people in a positive way is amazing to me. Now, the pressure of that is you can also crash the world if you don't do it right. right. And I'm okay with that pressure. But the fact is that that drive to actually grow a brand and to speak about something bigger. You know, to me, this change over from even from traditional interruption marketing entertainment, that's actually good for the world. And to be kind of a champion for that change in marketing that's happening around us. And some people are still fighting tooth and nail because they want the old world where it was all about TRPs and 30-second spots and all this garbage to be successful. I get a huge kick out of that. The fact that people get excited about the future of marketing. We're not just used car salesmen. We actually do something... Not to offend used car salesmen, but we're actually doing something that's meaningful for the world. Right. I know that sounds a bit trite because I'm not saving babies. I'm selling slices of pizza. But it just has a much bigger effect than that one pepperoni pizza that went out the door because somebody thought that that puppy execution was cute or because somebody thought that tweet was funny or because someone got a kick out of the fact that we gave this kid named Carter nuggets for the rest of his life because he was goofing with us at 1030 at night on a weekday. Right, 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 right. right. That's awesome. Interesting. I like it. I like it. Well, so most marketers are kind of students of the business, I should say. What brands, any other brands or companies or causes that you follow or you think other people should take notice of? Yes. I mean, I'm a bit of an advertising junkie, so I love great advertising. And I love when brands do things that are totally different. You know, I think a lot of smaller brands do really interesting things. And some smaller brands become big brands because of the interesting things they do. You know, I think the story right now of Tito's Vodka is amazing. Hmm. You know, that's a brand that doesn't run any really traditional advertising and is now literally the biggest spirits brand there is, single brand. I mean, they're beating John, you know, Johnny Walker and Jack Daniels just because they have a good product and they talk about it in, a, in kind of a real way. I'm not going to throw all the cliche ones at you like Apple and all these guys, but, but there are so many brands right now. I, I love the P&G, a big brand. You know, the mom's effort they did around the Olympics mm-hmm. was amazing. Amazing. I love what Tide did at the Super Bowl. And again, that's a bit cliche to say the Super Bowl, but you know, I know the guys who worked on that stuff and actually one of the main guys you know, now works for me at, through my agency. And another one is a good friend who used to work for me at Wendy's. So I feel very connected to that work. But just playing with the idea of that anything could be a tie dad, that was genius. It was awesome. <laughs> I think the fact that people are always creating new stuff that's compelling and interesting in marketing gives us huge hope that it's not just all about who's got the best pitch man or who's got the most media or who's got the most airtime. Because a lot of brands are doing really, really cool stuff today. Right. I think a lot of them don't get on big enough stages, yep. which is sad. Right. But I love what I'm seeing from Tito's. I love what Tide's doing there. I love what PNG's doing. There's a bunch of brands I could probably rattle off for 30 minutes. No, that's good. So last question for you. What do you think the future of marketing is going to look like? We've alluded to a number of things. So, Yeah, I think it's much more woven into culture. 
I think the fact that Kanye West can start tweeting for three or four days, like he just started to, and everybody and their brother pays attention to it, <laughs> should be a wake-up call to brands who don't take cultural and content marketing seriously. I think it's less artificial. It's less bullshit. It's less plastic. It's less about who has the biggest bullhorn. And it's more about who has the best thing to say, who has the most interesting thing to say. So I'm really excited for marketing because I'm hoping my nine-year-old daughter isn't subjected to the same you know, bad advertising that I was subjected to my entire life. I'm 38 years old now. I'm hoping by the time she's in her 20s, you know, brands have sort of figured out that it's not about interrupting people, annoying people, just reducing prices and giving stuff away. It's much more about actually being relevant and interesting. And I think millennials and Gen Zs, and I hate using those names just because it's so cliche now to throw out the demo, but I think a younger audience who grew up in a world, you know, people say millennials and Gen Zs don't have long attention spans. I think that's garbage. I don't think that's true at all. I think if you grew up with a smartphone in your pocket, you have access to so much content that you don't have to watch garbage. So if we're in a world that brands actually understand that and understand that it's not about your attention span, it's about whether you're worth hearing, worth paying attention to, that is a much better world. So I'm excited about what's coming. And I think what we're going to see is marketing that is much more driven by you're worth listening to and much less about you're the loudest, you have the most money to spend, you have the shiniest thing. I love it. I really like that reflection on the generation differences. I've never heard it put that way, but it makes so much sense. Like we all, being Gen X myself, you know, we always say, oh, the millennials, you know, <laughs> we just love it off, but it's us, right? Like if we were interesting enough, they'd probably pay attention to us, right? So that's exactly right. I think, I think brands need to earn the right to be heard. And I'm not there yet with Papa John's. I got a while. So I get there. I got big work to do actually to get there. <laughs> but the first step to fixing any problem is accepting the problem. And I'm hoping more brands accept that, you know, you actually have to be worth hearing. It's not about TRPs or God knows what. It's, it's actually about being worth hearing. So I love that. I think it's, it's going to be a great world for our kids one day. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Now, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Marketing Today is brought to you by Atomic. Atomic focuses on unleashing the growth potential for clients we serve. Atomic is a strategic consultancy specializing in business, marketing, brand, and innovation. Our singular goal is to help you accelerate your efforts with the right mix of expertise, analysis, and creativity. Check us out at atomic.com. A-T-O-M-C-K.com. Hi, it's Alan again. Marketing Today was created and produced by me, with writing and editing by Kevin Greeley, social media support by Megan Woods, art and graphic design by Sarah Dell. If you're new to marketing today, please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or your favorite listening platform. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends and colleagues about the show. I love to hear from listeners and you can contact me at marketingtodaypodcast.com. There you'll also find complete show notes with links to anything we talk about on any episode. You can also search our archives. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Hi. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 